Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. It's good to sing the songs of Zion with you this morning. If you would go ahead and turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. So I haven't been up here a few weeks anyway. Um, so for some of you who are visiting, we have been going through 1 Peter now for quite a while. And so working our way through the book slowly but surely uh, and sort of taking our time so we can appreciate all of the language that the Lord gives us. And I was just, just reminded this morning as we were driving back from Table Rock um, from the family camp out, but just driving back just thinking what a privilege it is that we all get to sit here together with, with the Word of God open in front of us and, and, and be just exposed yet again to um, eternal wisdom and to the eternal God and to know His mind and to know His heart on, on all manner of things, but in particular, as we're going to be looking at in chapter 3, as it pertains to the role of wives. And so we've been looking at this. We, we've uh, so far done a, couple, done a couple messages on it. Uh, just again, because I've, I've been wanting to sort of take my time in the text and appreciate it. We're, we live in such a fast-paced culture, it's so easy to gloss over language. And one of the things I want to encourage you women to do, as well as when we get to men, I'll encourage the men to do this as well, but encourage you women to do, is to take these, uh, take these terms that the Lord gives you and make them your own. You know? um, it can be easy as you go through life, as Steve was talking about, to sort of lose your way a little bit, get off in the weeds. What should I be doing at this time or that, in this instance or that, in this circumstance or that? And God gives you words. He gives you words that help dictate what he expects of you and words that you can trust and bank your life on. Um, living by the word of God is, is it's not only right, but it's the best possible way to live your life. Um, it, it's, it's the way that most assures you can have peace, blessing, the joy of Christ, um, all these things. So, um, and this is important to say, isn't it? Because the, the topic that we cover with wives, especially submitting to their husbands, it's not a popular one in our day. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And so, but, uh, but like I said in the first message, these are terms that are yours, that God graciously gives you. These words are not there to hurt you. These words are not there to be overbearing to you. These words are there to actually give you freedom, to give you uh, just direction and wisdom. And so just know that. Um, these, these are precious, precious concepts that the Lord has given. So I'm going to read chapter 3, 1 through 6, and then make some comments, and then we'll get into the text. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way... You wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, within the imperishable quality of a meek and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right, 
without being frightened by any fear. Let's pray. Father, we just, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. We, we thank you, Father, for the clarity it gives us. We thank you, Lord, for the strength that it gives us, how it gives us encouragement to persevere. Lord, in particular, we want to think about wives this morning um, and their relationship to their husbands. Lord, in particular, I think that Peter probably has in mind wives that are married to unbelieving men, but, but Lord, certainly it has application for wives living with men in general, even believing men that at times are disobedient to the word. Lord, you give them instruction here. And Lord, you do it in your wisdom. You do it with, with precision. And so, Lord, just pray that they would take these things to heart. As the, as the book of Proverbs says, they would take these things and write them, and you would write them on their hearts, that they would never leave them. It would bind them as a necklace around their necks, again, so that they would never leave them. And Lord, as they grow in these things, Lord, they'll be walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. They'll be honoring you in every way and honoring your word. And Lord, what a blessing that is. Lord, we're always thankful for that. It brings you glory and gives Satan a black eye, and we're always happy for that. And so, Father, we just ask again that you would do what I can't, that you would encourage and renew hearts through your word, by your spirit, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to read a few things here. I was curious, um, in thinking through this issue, you know, Paige and I watched some masterpiece, PBS thing, British, uh, set in the 19th century story, I can't remember what it was, Sense and Sensibility or Emma or something, I don't remember what it was. But I, I noticed that during the, the, the wedding of whoever the woman and the man were, that in the vows, the woman said, um, I will love and obey my husband. You know, And we watched this just a couple months ago, and I was like, whoa, that's love and obey? And it just dawned on me how stark that is from our current context. Now, of course, they're capturing you know, 100, 200 years back. But how stark and how far we have drifted from that notion that a woman is to, okay, we're okay with loving their husband, but obey? That just seems slavish, subservient. And I said, well, I'm just curious, what, what's some of the chatter on the internet if, with, this, with this whole love and obey vow thing? Because some people still use it. And um, so I, I found myself in a chat room with just a co- I'll just give you a couple snippets of what I found. All right, one lady says, Mrs. Wright, that's her, her little tag there, says, marriage is about mutual love, respect, and friendship. Well, I think that's true. Not submission. Hmm. Then she quotes Henry David Thoreau. Disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. The obedient must be slaves. So Henry David Thoreau says, if you're obedient and compliant and submissive, you're a slave. That's what our culture thinks about this, right? Here's anonymous. Because a woman does not need to obey her husband, she should respect her husband. The same goes for the husband respecting his wife. I am a strong, independent woman. I don't need a man to protect me. I am perfectly capable of living without a man to protect me. I will not be obeying any man that I marry. Sorry, but it's not 1930. It's called respecting your husband, not obeying them. 
right, one more. Anne, can't pronounce her last name. It reflects social changes, this idea of obedience, reflects social changes in the direction of gender equality that have been going on for quite a long time now. In other words, she's saying that obey is not a part of the social construct anymore. My grandmother left out obey when she married my grandfather more than 100 years ago. I gather it made a bit of a stir then, but certainly doesn't anymore. And I would say that's probably true. To leave out obey now would not register any alarm, right? But to put it in now, oh man, I mean, you know, there's going to be lots of discussions at the reception afterwards about this whole idea of obey. And so the question is, is that true? Is that true? Is this, is this just the virtue of a bygone era? Something that stands or falls with certain cultures? Or is it something that is constant throughout all cultures, transcends culture, transcends time? Well, Peter tells us very plainly, doesn't he, that no, it is something that the Lord requires of women. The Lord does require obedience to their husbands. And this is the way that is pleasing to him. So we're going to focus in on verse 5 and 6, where Peter, at this point in the instruction to the women, is wanting to give them comfort and encouragement. Okay? Again, you hear obedience, immediately doesn't feel comforting, right? But trust me, this, is, this, is, this section that we're going to be looking at is something to give you comfort and encouragement. Motivation, as it were, to live with your man in a way of obedience and submission. All right, so let's start looking at verse 5. For in this way, Peter says, in former times, the holy woman also hoped in God, submitted to their husbands. Okay. In this way, Peter says. Well, what way? Well, the way we've already been looking at in previous weeks, alluding to a woman's meek and submissive and respectful behavior toward their husbands. So in this way, Peter says, in former times, the Holy Woman also used to live like this. So former times, most likely thinking of the era of the Old Testament. Old Testament history, this would have been uh, deeply rooted in Peter's mind. So he's thinking of this Old Testament history where, where there were these holy women who lived in a way that revealed that they held to this notion that they were the helpers in the marriage, the submissive partners in the marriage, and that this was God's design. So, what should we take away from this, just right off the bat? We're, we're to take away from this that this is not a new idea. Right? This is no new concept. This is not coming about with the age of the church. This is not progressivism, progressive Christianity at this point in the first century. That's not what this is. This is something that is constant. It's a, it's a, it's a thread that began in the beginning, isn't it? Aligning yourself under the authority of your husband has always been the Lord's design for wives, all the way back to the beginning of history. The role of husband is head and wife is helper from the beginning. Matter of fact, we looked at that a couple weeks back, how even the, the way the, the woman is fashioned reveals her role. After sin, however, the role of headship with the man and the role of helper with the woman becomes distorted and perverted and even jettisoned altogether, as you heard these comments in the chat room. They are not interested in this notion at all. It is mutual at every level. 
And please understand, I believe in mutual friendship and love, mutual respect and all of that, 100%. Please don't hear me say anything other than that. However, God has designed authority structures and they are good. They are good, they are wise. But when sin comes into the world, this role is distorted, perverted, and jettisoned altogether. The husband, instead of being a loving head of the home, will now be domineering and dominating because, oftentimes, the wife will constantly challenge the husband now. If you read in Genesis 3, this is, this is what happens. Part of the curse is the man ruling over the woman and the woman wanting to rule over the man. It's this competing of the wills where a woman wants his place and the man tries to claim his place yet with domination. So it's an ugly thing. This is what happens. Distortions, perversions. And they're a part of the curse, isn't it? I mean, feminism is not liberating at all. It's a part of the curse. It's a part of the the darkness that enters into the world for a woman to think that that living her own life, her autonomous life, pursuing her own dreams and wishes apart from her husband is God's way. And it's not. It's actually, it's actually the way of selfishness, self-absorption, and curse. But when a woman is born again, like these women are that Peter's talking to, one of the primary restorations that occurs, I mean really for all of us, is an accurate expression now of our image-bearingness, right? That's what happens. Our image, when, before we're in Christ, the image of God is skewed in us really bad. We're self-absorbed, self-loving people. We drink sin like water. And yet, when the Lord saves us and gives us His Holy Spirit, the back of self is broken. And now we want to love Him, of course, because we've seen Him with the eyes of our heart, and we want to love one another, But then also in that comes the details. The details about who we are to be as a man and who we are to be as a woman. And even in this sense, the the image of God as it pertains to a woman's role begins to be renewed. And God gives you instruction now, wives, on what it means to be a faithful wife. You You can throw off the opinions of the world or the chat room that I just read and you can take up God's words and you can make them your own and you can be well-pleasing to Him. This is the way you walk with Him. And yeah, the good news is we have the spiritual resources now to do this. You have the spiritual resources now to do this. Remember I was saying that, you know, America paints a very challenging picture for women to live up to. You've got to have this shape with this fashion trend with this kind of lingo, right? With these kinds of things you buy, these kinds of appliances, these kinds of clothes, whatever it is. And I mean, you guys are all different. You can't achieve that. And so you're going to constantly be feeling like you fail. But the reality is, you, it's the wrong, it's the completely wrong standard. All the things that the Lord mentions here, you can do. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You can do it. You have His Spirit and you can walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And set yourself apart in that way. What, a, what an amazing reality. It's wonderful. But the reality is that this whole idea of a woman submitting to her husband, this is nothing new. Former times and now. It goes on. And he says these are holy women who did this. Women that are set apart by the Lord for his use. That's what the idea of holy is. You're set apart by God for him. So no longer, right? No longer are you living for your own 
will, but for his will. You're set apart for him. So your whole life now is really not about you as much. It's, it's more about what does he want. That's what it is. So holy women, think of Sarah. Think of Hannah, Esther, Ruth, Abigail. What a picture with Abigail. Joan and I were talking about that the other day. What an amazing picture. Living with a man who is an utter fool and yet wanting to preserve his life and, not make, and, and also not wanting her king to take vengeance into his own hand. Just what an amazing picture. I, I commend you to read 1 Samuel 25 when you can. But these are the women that are distinct from the world. These are women that had a faith in the Lord. And out of that faith, they lived certain lives that were distinct and holy. Well, what, what set them apart and gave them the motivation in their day-to-day to live with their husbands in their particular roles in a way that's faithful to the Lord? Well, the text tells us here, these are women who are holy that hoped in God. They hoped in God. They had their eyes in the right place. They hoped in the Lord. This is the fundamental source of a woman's strength in any marriage. And all of you have different experiences with your, with your husbands. Some of you have great husbands. Some of you have really hard husbands. Some of you have husbands that don't walk with the Lord. What's going to give you strength is hope. It's going to be to fill your vision with God and who He is for you in Jesus Christ. They hoped in God. What is hope in the Scriptures? Well, hope is an eager expectation, an eager anticipation, an eager anticipation of a certain future. Certain future, not a wishful thinking future, but a certain future. Think of this. Hebrews 6. Just listen to this. Hebrews 6. Now, for all the, all the wounding the book of Hebrews does, and if you've read the book of Hebrews before, you understand that it can wound you pretty deep. Sometimes you're just like, okay, I feel like I'm on the precipice here, just reading it. Am I, you know, because it has passages in there about apostasy that are scary. But to the degree that it wounds you, to even more, I would say, it should encourage you. So whatever whatever wounds it brings, it can also bring healing. Just listen to this. I'm wanting to give you strong encouragement. In Hebrews 6, 11 through 19, this idea of hope is, is pervasive. Writer says to these people that were starting to compromise their faith, they were starting to get sluggish in their faith, they were starting to get private in their faith, no longer public, they were feeling the pressures of the culture that was against them more and more, and they'd had, they had actually suffered in measure in the past for their faith, and here they, they, they are at a point where they were struggling. The writer even tells them that they're neglecting so great a salvation. That's a bad place to be. When you're, you know, what is neglect? Neglect is just, oh, I'm into it, but I never got around to it. That whole idea of a passive, just, just a passive, uh, yeah, just a passive setting aside of things that you know you ought to be doing. That was these people. And so the writer of Hebrews has some things where he wants to say, hey, listen, you've got to wake up. You drift, you're gone. 
But he also wants to say, but you have every reason to endure. Listen to what he says. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you will not be sluggish. See, hope doesn't mean you become sluggish. Our certain future doesn't mean we become sluggish. Right? Our certain future means we have every reason now to hope and be vibrant in our lives for Christ. But be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater than himself, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Remember God says this promise to Abram back in Genesis. I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. I mean, you remember the whole story there. I'm going to bless you in ways you can't fathom now. And I'm going to make you a father of many nations in a way that you can't fathom now. But Abram had faith. He trusted the Lord. And God did give him deposits of his promise. And that's what it says. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. He had a son. He had a promised son, Isaac. And this, through this son, Isaac, this promised seed would come the Messiah. So his point is what? God makes a promise. You trust that promise and you wait and you do what God says in light of that promise and guess what happens? You get what he promised. It's as good as yours. He obtained it. For men swear by one greater than themselves and, and with them an oath is given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. And in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. Remember, God says, I swear by myself that I will do this. So that by two unchangeable things, that is a promise and an oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. So what's he saying here? He's saying that God has given promise. This promise is reinforced with an oath as if God even had to do that, but he does it because we're so weak, God doubles up. He reinforces his promise as if, again, he needed to, but he does. He wants you to know, I really, really, really mean it. You can trust me. If I said it, I will do it. What's the promise? I will surely bless you and multiply you, Abram. You're going to start my family. You're going to start my family and I'm going to pull our children from all the nations. Right? That's why we do mission work. So that we can gather in the children of Abraham. The promised seed. Heirs. So the promise is God's consummate blessing to be experienced with God's family promised to Abraham. The Hebrews did not fully experience this blessing. The writer says that the fullness of this blessing happens at the end. He said it earlier, so that you will realize the full assurance of hope until the end. There's this, there's this consummate blessing that we're all awaiting. And how are you going to get there? You're going to get there through hope. Waiting on that. You know, and if God brings challenges into your life, I know they're so hard, but you've got to understand that they're so good for you. 
because it weans you off the lie that thinks that this is all there is. This is not all there is. This is merely a place where you are wandering as the Lord brings things into your life to show you His character in testing and in joy so you can learn more of who He is so that you can be useful to Him. But this is not the end. And you've got to have a firm gaze fixed on that eternal future that is coming. Or else you will become sluggish. It will become too hard. You will become too weary. And you will end up just escaping to the remote or to food or to anything else to just numb it all and just check out and neglect and drift. You've got to have it so firmly fixed in your mind that this really is not your home. Because if you don't, you will not be useful to Christ. You won't. But hope... Fixing your gaze on that certain future, it makes you useful. Man, it puts everything in perspective. Your trials and everything, it puts them all in perspective. Wives living with men that are are utterly disobedient, harsh even. What kind of of comfort can they have? Well, they can have comfort to know that it really is temporary. And, and how guaranteed is the hope? Well, the writer says it's within the veil. Well, who's in within the veil? Jesus Christ is in the veil. You're united to him if you know him. So if he's there, you're there. He's already in the presence of God for you. So that means if he's there, you have it. It's just a matter of time. So the writer of Hebrews is like, listen, don't go private, don't neglect. Listen, I know it's hard. You have a sympathetic high priest who knows it's hard. Don't be sluggish. There's so much more we could say about that. But, but hope, I, I feel like, maybe it's a really helpful definition. I feel like hope is future-oriented faith based on God's sure word. Future-oriented faith based on God's sure word. Our hope is as good as the word it's built on. And we know that the Lord's word is absolute and and absolutely trustworthy. So hope. And these ladies, the holy women of old, and the women in Peter's time, and you ladies, you are to hope in God, is what the writer says. Hope in God. Notice Peter doesn't say hoping in the husband finally treating you like you deserve. That would be nice. We certainly pray that way. But it may not happen. Right? What if it doesn't happen? Peter wants to give strong encouragement that a certain lifestyle lived in front of your husband might mean that the Lord saves him. That he comes to term with the power of the gospel in your life and says, I need that. That's what Peter says. You might win your man without a word. But you know what? It might not. So what do you do? Well, who is constant? What is constant? Not the behavior of your man, but the goodness and the power and the love of God for you. It's constant. It's constant. He's always there. Think of that always there so I'm a leader I'm a pastor sometimes you call me you can't get me 
I'm sorry about that. Sometimes I just can't. I've got limitations. It's never that way with him. It's never that way with him. He says to millions of wives, call on me. I'll be your very present help. Hope in God. He's the one you need. He's the one who gives you stability. He's the one who gives you perspective. He's the one you rely on. You don't hope just that your circumstances will change. I mean, there's a sense in which you hope that it does. I mean, don't get me wrong. You're not supposed to just you know, live as if this was all great, necessarily. But, but, but fundamentally, what's going to keep you obeying and living and loving Him Loving your husband, loving the Lord Jesus, loving his people, putting your sin to death is going to be finally because you care more about the approval of the Lord and you're more reliant upon his strength and power that's constant than you are on how your husband treats you. That's just it. The Lord Jesus will always treat you well. Learn of me. I am gentle and lowly of heart. So the the holy women of old, their hope was in God. Their trust was entirely in the Lord. These types of women, they know their marriages are not fundamentally about their creature comforts and storybook marriage. It's about hoping in the Lord. It's about trusting in His Word and, 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 and knowing that her submission to her husband, her obedience to her husband, will bring the favor of the Lord and the strength through her challenges. Cultivating a walk with the Lord, where you've proved the Lord over and over, and you know over, and, and you know that your husband is his is in his hand. You can't change him. You think you can? Maybe if you say it a different way this time, or maybe if you say it ten more times, but that doesn't work. Matter of fact, it works the opposite. It works hardening. It works conflict and sparks. And that's not what you want. I understand it's challenging, but there's a better way. It's hoping in the Lord. Ultimately, a woman's hope is is that the Lord has tremendous purpose in all of her turmoil. You know, Peter's going to go on in chapter 4 to say, Please don't think it's a strange thing that you're in a fiery trial. But we think about it. We're like, this is, this is insane. But where do you live? Where do you live? I was just talking with a little girl last night. He wants to get baptized. And we were talking about the fact that being a Christian is going to be hard. Part of the reason is because Christians are the minority. At any given time in, in, in history, we still are the minority. And to tease that out a little bit, to put a little bit finer point on that, that means that most of the people that are around us don't love what we love. They don't want what we want. <laughs> At least in the ultimate things. 
And so you're oftentimes going to be engaging a world that is disagreeable and hostile. And, and yet the Lord Jesus says, I'll be with you in that. It's no different even in a marriage. You might be married to a man where you're faced with this every day. And what's going to keep you going is a hope in the Lord. A healthy diet of, of, of feeding on his word. You know, I was thinking about this in the Old Testament. The Lord sovereignly left Canaanites in the land. You know, Canaanites are not a hard, you know, they're not a hard obstacle for the Lord to remove. Right? The Lord looks at the nations raging and he what? He laughs. He's not worried about it. But he leaves them in the land. And in Judges 3 it says, they were left in the land only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. Because those who had not experienced it formerly, that generation. The text goes on to say, they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. He leaves them in there so that his people would learn war? I mean, isn't the Lord about absolving conflict? Isn't he about removing all obstacles in our lives? Well, this passage says absolutely not. Not this side of heaven. This side of heaven is actually so that you learn to fight. Now, this isn't about you becoming a, a, a savvy swordsman. It's not in the physical sense. What is it about? It's about It's about you learning that the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is the one who fights your battles. The Lord is a strong deliverer. He leaves them in there so he says, listen, you go fight against him. How many, I don't know, 300 is fine. There's thousands and thousands of them. 300 is fine. Actually, more than that is, is not good. I need it to be smaller and smaller. And then you can go and get in. You can take out these armies of thousands and, and I want you to learn this because I don't really fundamentally need you. You need me and you have me. So I'm going to leave these Canaanites so you can see my character, my love for you. I fight for you. I advocate for you. You have to believe me. If you believe me and you go into war, I will be with you and I will give you victory. That's the, whole, the Old Testament is so rich at this level. It shows you that God is the God who really keeps his word. Read the Old Testament. These passages where you get a grip on why conflict exists in your life. He says it's to test to see if they would obey His commands. What did He command? He commanded to drive out the Canaanites. Don't leave any of them. Drive them out. Drive them out. Drive them out. I will be with you. I'll drive them out. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. So on and so forth. Joshua did oftentimes. And what happened? The Lord gave victory over and over and over. What happens? So often we just don't trust Him. We think that his word about let's, what we're talking about today, submitting to your husband, that doesn't mean it now, right? That doesn't mean it then. My situation is just totally different, right? Certainly he wouldn't ask me to do it now. That's the way we think. Wives, don't think that way. Don't think that way. It's the best way. Oh, how much blessing comes from a woman finally realizing, you know what, I'm not going to fight him on this anymore. I'm going to obey. I mean, we were just, Paige and I were just talking about this the other day. I don't want to mention names, but there was a conflict in a couple, and 
the Lord finally, the wife finally, you know, came to terms that, okay, I'm gonna follow suit. And the Lord has just blessed to pieces this whole situation. It's crazy just to reflect on it, but it's so true. You don't have to understand it, right? Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on. There you go. We want to. We really do. I can figure this out, Lord, better than you. It's a bad place to be. The Lord says to us, to you wives, do not fear them. I've given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. And Joshua captured all these kings in their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. That's awesome. So the Lord is in all these things. My point is that the Lord, wives, wants to teach you something about his own character. When your husbands are being jerks, I can be a jerk. When your husband can be a jerk, and you've got some choices to make on how you're going to respond, respond well. Respond with these, this language, firmly fixed in your, in your minds and hearts. And the Lord will honor that. Battles come into your life. These are not accidents. Opportunities to grow, opportunities to learn, opportunities to prove the Lord in His Word. Now there are gray areas, aren't there? Where you're in a situation that's generally hard to sort out. Should I obey Him here? I mean, and even in our lives as Christians, I mean, they're, they're hard to... Some things you just it, it can get gray. But even there we have... Guidelines. Things like put on a heart of compassion. I mean, that's sort of a general principle, isn't it? We can't ever lose a heart of compassion, ever. Or do not return evil for evil. That's just a general guideline, isn't it? What a wonderful guideline that is. But seek after that which is good from one another. There's a guideline. Or how about let no root of bitterness springing up defile the many. These kinds of things. So you might not know, okay, you know, take four steps and do this. But you know you can't let bitterness take root. You know you've got to keep a heart of compassion. You know you can't return evil for evil. You can't lash back. You can't revile. You've got to be meek. That's the things you know. So the details of things, it's really up to the Lord. It's your character and your demeanor and your responses, these kinds of things, and your heart. And then sometimes you're going to blow it. You're not going to do it right. right? You're going to fail. There's hope, right? There's hope. He's a gracious Savior. The blood of Jesus Christ still cleanses you from all sin. Peter walking on waves, doing great. He begins to sink. And then what? He says, Lord, save me. And the Lord, he doesn't say, oh, nope, you're sinking, buddy. He doesn't do that. He saves him. Bring him back up. <laughs> that's the story with us all this is a daily thing ladies it's a daily thing yesterday's grace is not enough for today it's a daily thing that's why you know you have in the Old Testament daily manna don't, you know don't can't rely on yesterday's manna it's every day so these Women of old, they used to adorn themselves in submission. It's 
That's what the text says here. And what woman does Peter point out in particular? Sarah. This is interesting. Sarah. Sarah was a woman of faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. She also wasn't flawless, right? I mean, to say the least. She couldn't conceive, and so she tells her maidservant to get with her husband, make it happen. She wanted to take these things into her own hands and hurry up the process. And then that ended up turning out to be a total train wreck of a relationship between her and her maidservant. She actually laughs in unbelief at the Lord when he makes certain promises. She's not flawless, right? Isn't that encouraging this, though, still, ladies? You got Sarah. She's your example. And yet the Bible records for us her failings. I mean, it's not good. We don't look at the failings as examples in the sense that, okay, you know, I, I have room now to do these things. They are warnings. They are warnings that you can be susceptible to this type of unbelief. They are warnings, just like King David, right? His whole instance with Bathsheba is not an example, it's a warning. So understand that they are warnings. But, she's a woman of faith. She's a woman who wasn't perfect, but she trusted in the Lord. Now, Peter says two things about her. She obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Really looking forward to that last one, you know calling him Lord. You you ladies are going to love my application on that one. Obedience. This is the language. Obedience. She follows her husband out of the era of Chaldees, right? Babylonian country. Abram, come out. Go to land, I'll show you. We don't get a whole lot of details, but there she is with him. She follows him out of the country. Certainly this wouldn't have been easy to uproot based on faith, going to a pagan land, not knowing where they were going. Actually out of a pagan land into another one, so I guess it was all sort of wicked. But she goes. Now, you know the instance that I'm about to bring up. It's a strange one where she obeys Abraham when he tells her to say she is his sister. So first instance there is a famine in the land of promise. So Abraham's like, we can't stay here. We need to go to Egypt. There's food there. So they go. And they have an arrangement between them that says whenever we go into these nations with these these wicked kings, you're going to say that I'm your brother. You're going to show me this kindness. This is actually what they say. Abram says, she actually is my sister, Genesis 12-13, the daughter of my father. So technically it was true, half-sister, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you shall show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. So this wasn't actually just two instances. This This was like something they worked out. This was an arrangement. You're beautiful, you're very desirable, and if we go in there 
in order to have you, they're going to whack me. So how he knew this, it would be an interesting study. But you just go into some undeveloped nations and see how they operate, you get a good sense of how this can actually come about. But this was Abram's fear, and this was scandalous. Abram is somebody who's supposed to be protecting his wife, caring more for her than he does his own neck. In my view, this is scandalous. Again, Abram's not flawless, is he? But this was an arrangement between Sarah and Abraham. Sarah would say, he's my brother. Each time this happened, what would happen? Well, we have the two instances recorded with Abimelech and and, um, Pharaoh. Both times, Abram was right. They took her. She was beautiful. But the Lord, both times, supernaturally intervened and spared Sarah from having relations with these kings. And what's more, what's more, God ends up giving Abraham his wife back, which is great, but all kinds of riches. Listen. Genesis 20. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. A vindication. A vindication of who she really was. A vindication of why she did what she did. This is crazy. This is scandalous. I have to just say a quick parenthesis here. Isn't this the scandal of the gospel? Frankly, here's Abram making an ungodly decision to hurt his wife. Or at least to say she's, a, she's available. I mean, that's the deception, right? It's not technically you're my sister, yes, but what you're saying is that she's available. And that's bad because you're not available. And yet, through this ungodly decision, this, putting your wife through terror certainly had to be fearful. On the backside, God just dumps blessing all over him because of Sarah's faith. Isn't this the gospel? We are utterly ungodly people, sinful through and through, and God not only gives us forgiveness, he gives us eternity with him. This is just such a snapshot. You feel the scandal of this, right? Abram gets all these riches for the horrible decision he made. This is all of us in Christ. All of us in Christ get far, far, far more than we can ever possibly deserve. I just had to say that, because it's all over. It, to me, it just, this whole text just feels, it's just grace upon grace upon grace. But this is the arrangement. Now listen, I wouldn't say that I would have advised Sarah to deceive others in these instances by saying she's Abraham's sister. I do think it was a deception. But, but we've got to be careful because in judging things too harshly, she, put, she was putting her neck on the line pretty, pretty intensely here, her own neck, her own dignity. I mean, a woman's purity is just so vital to her own sense of self-worth. 
And here she is. I mean, again, the scandal is just continues to wash over me at times, just how Abram just, oh, I hope that I, you know, I hope that we wouldn't do that. I'm not above it at all, but man. But here she is. She's, she's saying, okay, I'll tell him you're my brother. She obeyed, didn't she? She obeyed. What can we say about this? She obeyed at great risk to herself. We can also say the Lord protected her in both occasions. And we can also say the Lord brought about tremendous blessing in both accounts. So again, I don't think I would have advised her to do it. I don't, I don't even know that I could say that I felt that, she, that, that I think the Lord would say that she's obligated to do it. Because it was, it was a lie. It was a deception. At, at, a, really, at a really vital level, with marriage, right? This is. But the Lord loved Sarah, protected her in this. I think the Lord saw why she was doing it. It was faith in Him, love for her husband, deference to her husband. She obeys. What can we say about this? Sometimes following your husband is going to take tremendous trust in the Lord, ladies. It is. Husbands can make really bad decisions. Really bad ones. It's actually not easy to lead at all. You know, husbands, if you really know your role well, you feel it, it's very hard to lead well. In other words... If you have a view of headship where, you know, you let your wife do all the work and, you know, you're sort of off to the side doing your own thing and you're not guiding your family, you're silent on everything, you know, you're the head whether you realize it or not. You don't become the head when you begin to lead well. You're head, period. So you're either doing it well bad. But you're the head either way. But it's, if you want to do it well, it's hard, and ladies need to understand that. But sometimes husbands are going to make really bad decisions. And especially if the husband, like in Peter's case here, the, these, this guy's an unbeliever, potentially. I mean, pro, he's at least an unbeliever, and then probably maybe extends to Christians who sometimes can be disobedient to the word. But what do you learn from Sarah? What you learn from Sarah is that the Lord is with you. He is with you. He will protect you ultimately, finally, for that day. Right? You have the attitude of Esther, if I perish, I perish. But I don't finally perish, right? With the Lord. You have that attitude. Like, the Lord has intentions and good purposes for me and all these things. But oftentimes, following your husband is going to take tremendous trust. Sometimes, ladies, you're going to strongly disagree with your husband. Sometimes you might even, this might even be the area where you think, technically, I don't have to submit to him. But you don't know which route to go. And in turn, you, you choose to follow him in hopes of honoring the Lord's word. I think this was Sarah's mindset. And you'll find protection in the Lord's upholding. You will. I can say it without hesitation. You will. He will keep you. 
He'll keep you from falling. He will uphold you and give you strength. Please don't hear me say, if you're being genuinely physically beaten by your husband, that you have to stay and take that. In that instance, I would recommend probably third-party intervention, civil help, law enforcement maybe, if if that's really what's going on. So please don't hear me say that. I want to make sure that's clear. I'm not going to sit there and say that. But you know, and I mean that, but you know, there's a lot of women overseas in Muslim contexts. They don't even have that option. Who are they going to go to? The local Muslim authorities when they convert to Christianity? So what do we, you know? So even there, the Lord will be with them. I mean, there's a lot I could say about that. I have some thoughts there. But I hope in the Lord. The Lord will be with you. The Lord will protect. The Lord will guide. Okay. Enough on that. She also calls him Lord. Now, when I said you'd really love it, I was just joking. Because I figured that and that's really all my application is. It's just, you need to start calling your husband's master. I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. You know, but it's funny because, what's it, Rachel Held Evans did a research study for a year. She's passed away now. She's a liberal. And she really mocked this text. And she purposed for a week to call her husband master and lord for a week at every point. Um, anyway, there's a lot I could say about that, but it actually became sort of funny, honestly, when, if, I, if you watch it. But on the other hand, it's, it's really not funny because what Peter is saying here is that Sarah had a, a subconscious deference for the role of her husband. Now, the place where it's recorded... Sarah calls him Lord was Genesis 18.12. The context was the Lord, represented by three human men, comes to Abraham and Sarah, telling them that they will have a son in their old age. I mean, they could be angels or whatever, but they were men. They come to Sarah and Abraham, telling them they will have a son in their old age. Reinforce that. Well, they tell Abraham this news sort of outside of the tent away from Sarah. Sarah's in her tent just kind of listening through as good eavesdroppers do. No, this is probably, I'd probably be eavesdropping. Three angels come to your door. But Sarah overhears it and she laughs. We're going to have a son. I'm 90. He's 100. Probably not. But the but Moses sort of, he, he writes down what was recorded of what she said. The text says this in Genesis eighteen twelve. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? So when she hears the news, you're going to have a son, she's thinking, after I become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? So what is interesting about this? I mean, it doesn't at first glance look like this passage, this passage is sort of capturing Sarah's obedience and submission, right? She's laughing, 
in unbelief at the Lord. But it's interesting because she's by herself. She's by herself. And she says this to herself. You know what I mean? She isn't just telling Abraham this when he's in the presence of his, you know, him and his boys. It wasn't, it wasn't something to, to just do in public when they were around. This was something she was doing by herself. In her mind. In her heart. She revered Abraham as the God-given authority and leader of her life. That's why this passage is really wonderful. Because it's when no one was looking. And that's what I mean. These passages are here so that they really become yours. They become yours in the sense that they become the fabric of your DNA and your thinking about yourself and your marriage and your husband. And that's what, what's what it was for Sarah. Hebrews picks up on this passage too and, and it could be another place that Peter has in his mind that, that she obeyed. Hebrews 11, 11, By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. So she came around. Her laughter turned into trust. She came around. But the writer of Hebrews says, by faith she conceived. Do you think about that? What does this mean? Why is it faith to conceive? Well, certainly. Again, she's 90. She's 90. You know, the sexual relationship has sailed. Think about the measure of faith here. Perhaps that ship sailed for a while. I don't know. I don't don't know. I don't know the ages there. But the Lord says you're going to have a child in your old age. And it wasn't going to be... We know it's not going to be a virgin birth. And it's not even going to be sort of a one-sided conception, you know, without the husband or something like that. She would have had to come together with Abraham. So, so by faith, she tells her husband, you know, all right, honey, let's trust the Lord. And they go through with it. It's amazing. And the Lord gives them a child. This is faith. Man, There are This type of action is just ridiculed, I feel like, even in the Christian community. You know? This type of faith. I'm going to trust the Lord and go be with my husband, and I'm 90 years old. I don't know how this is going to happen. That's faith. The Lord said it will. I know it will. Again, when we, when we, when we encounter challenges, and we're just like, Lord, you really say you love my enemies? Right here? This one? Or... Submit to my husband even though he's been a jerk to me all day long? Really? I mean, that's not a good idea, right? Or husbands honor your wives even though they've been unhonorable all day? Yeah. Trust the Lord in his word. It's always best. And the Lord will always come through for you. He'll always gird you up. He'll show himself to you in mighty ways. And then you can begin to talk to people about how he showed himself to you. But if you always, if, if, you, if you don't believe him, and you're a constant frantic, you know, constantly frantic and panicky about this and that and the other thing, you're never going to know his character. 
You won't. You won't. But Sarah believed, and she had a, a child when she was 90. Trust his word. And then Peter ends up saying here at the end, and you've become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. This is taken from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3. A passage of giving general instruction about all manner of things, but basically a way to live your life under the sovereign reign of God, trusting him in all points. With your wealth, with your day-to-day interactions with people, bind truth and kindness around your neck always. And he goes on to talk about have wisdom, have discretion, and if you do, you won't be afraid by anything. You'll be able to sleep in, in confidence and those kinds of things. Well, this passage is, there's an allusion to this passage in Peter's mind here, and he says to these wives that you've become Sarah's children if you do what is right, that is, submitting to your husbands, without being frightened by any fear. You know, the scriptures oftentimes speak of parent-child relationships based on behavior, right? Like father, like son. Those kinds of things. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Right? Why? Because God is an, an, an ultimate wonderful peacemaker. And if you're living like him, you're his son in that sense, behaviorally. You reflect him. And women, how can you reflect the holy women of old? By being submissive and obedient to your husbands. That's how you can do it. It's a wonderful thing. And if you do this, there are certain promises and, 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 and encouragements here to not be frightened by any fear. Any fear. Any fear. Think of all the different things that could make you afraid, ladies. And women are just naturally, because of their more fragile frame in in many ways, emotionally. Certainly not intellectually, but emotionally. There's some fragility there. There, There's a natural impulse to worry, to to connect all the dots in a way that's going to be drastically horrible. Just sort of this extrapolation's Ladies, your minds can sometimes just just run to the end of how bad something's going to happen. And all of you struggle with it in varying degrees. It's not like men don't struggle with it, but I think, it is a, a, I think it's more of a struggle for women. Fear, anxiety, those kinds of things, worry. And Peter says, you have good reason to not be frightened by any fear. Women are in a vulnerable position of being led by another's decisions. Again, men, you've got to take this really seriously and know that you can't, <laughs> you can't live constantly trying to work out that you know, faith muscle in your wife. Like, you, know, you, you don't want to live on the edge. You don't want to intentionally make a lot of decisions that are going to constantly keep her in a panic. You need to be stable. You know, be sober, be sensible. But the reality is that a, that a woman is much more vulnerable because she's following somebody else. You think Sarah was afraid when she had to go into the house of a wicked king? Can you imagine that? But, you know, it's interesting, and I don't, I don't want to make too much of it, but the reality is you don't really hear much regarding her fear. There's nothing in the text that says anything about it. Again, I don't want to make too much of it, but you don't, you don't hear much of it. And I know the writer is intentional there, but, but you just have this sense that she had confidence in the Lord. 
So again, ladies, you might find yourself in situations where you're following your husband into uncertain territory and you're fearful. I was talking with a couple recently, even with business ventures. Husband's making certain decisions about money and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And she's like, I think that's a really bad idea. And I think there's a a place that the lady really, I mean, obviously you can voice your concern. I'm not saying you can't. But once you've made your concern clear, there's a sense in which you just have to stop and hold your peace because then it's just going to go bad if you keep on bringing it up. That's again what Peter is after, I think. But you finally have to resolve yourself to the fact that the scriptures say that I don't have to be afraid by any terror, anything that would make me utterly fearful. And again, you look at these women in Muslim contexts that they become Christians and they're literally thrown out of their homes or worse. This passage alone, I mean, this, this passage would give strong encouragement to them to know that your plight, your, your situation is not, un, is not out from my view. And just like I protected Sarah, ultimately I'll protect... He protects all his people, ultimately. Because again, this is is not about this life. It's about future glory. It's about our faith. It's not about your, your, your hallmark marriage. It's not what it is. You might have times of that, which is wonderful. Enjoy those times. Rejoice in those times. Please, man, be thankful for those times. If you've got a strong marriage with a wife, that you love each other, you're attracted to each other, you want to be with each other, all those kinds of things, that is a blessing from the Lord. You shouldn't feel bad about it for a second. But, (laughs) a lot of days aren't roses. And wives, don't be afraid. How many times, I can't remember, there was some study done, how many times fear, don't fear is in the Bible, it's like, Somebody know right off the top of their head? Because it's sort of like a, a cool little study. Was it 365? It is. is that right? 365 times? Did you count it? I'm just kidding. No, but I, I, it, it, it probably makes sense. I mean, three, I mean, over and over and over and over and over. And what do we get afraid about? We get afraid because I don't know what's going to happen there, Lord. And if I don't get a certain amount of worried, then it's not going to go well. Well, the Lord says, listen... <laughs> You, you don't even know if you drive out of here and you, you might take a wrong turn or take a turn too fast and someone smack you and you die. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know. Your life is a vapor. You can't change anything. Don't worry. I've got it. You're mine. I'm not going to lose you. Trust me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and He'll make your paths straight. But if you go about always relying on your own noggin all the time to escape your trials or to, to, to rationalize them or whatever, not that you don't have to use your head, wisdom's vital, all that, God gives it. But at the end of the day, you can say, Lord, I am afraid. I am anxious. But you tell me to give you my anxieties because you care for me. And I need you. I need you to uphold me. And sometimes that's going to feel like like literally like you know just a, a small small handhold you have and yet that's enough but some days it'll feel like that but that's enough and the lord will give you that but then on the back side you'll look at it and you'll be like holy cow there was so much that i learned about who he is about who i am about who that man is that i just wouldn't have learned any other way and it's just the truth we're in his school. And this is, this is what he's doing. So ladies, your life will be far more peaceful and simpler. 
I'll, I'll add that, simpler. What lady doesn't want their life to be simple? It'll be simpler if you obey your husbands. If you feel convicted this morning, you want to turn away from maybe a contentious pattern you've had, and you want to sort of give the reins back to your husband, well, number one, you might find him utterly stunned. That's going to feel weird. There was one time where Paige and I were in a certain season where we were talking about things, and we couldn't come to terms, and I was on the verge of just sort of letting it go. I'm not trying to pick on her. She's my wife. She's, I mean, she's not in here too, so that helps. Um, but right when I was about to kind of be like, all right, fine, if that's what you want to do, she said, whatever you think, babe. And I was like, well, gosh, now, now I have to make the decision. And it's got to be a good one. And I feel a little bit like I'm not clear on which route to take. I mean, it was, it's sort of a scary place to be, you know? But I just want to encourage you wives to do that for your husbands. It's best for them. It's simpler for you. Now, don't do it in a way that you're like, all right, you go hang yourself, right? I'm going to let you go hang yourself. You know, don't, don't do that. That's the wrong attitude. But saying, it's fine, whatever you think, babe. I think you'll be amazed at how much warmer he will be. And he'll probably want to be wanting more input. And then you have the choice. You can say, no, nah, I'm not going to advise you. I'm not going to say, no, you can handle it. You know. Or you can be gracious and say, well, yeah, I do think we need to do this or that. So, But this role of a woman, submissive to your own husbands, is the Lord's way. Just so clear. Isn't it so clear? And, um, and we don't need to be embarrassed about it. We don't need to be ashamed about it at all. We need to pity everybody else who's trying to figure it out and it's making a total shipwreck of their lives. And they are. I mean, which Hollywood celebrity is the role model, right, for a stable woman and a very strong, healthy, robust marriage? (laughs) Even the best ones. I say best, meaning they're still together after, you know, three years. Are still just riddled with scandal, right? So they're, they're no role model. Sarah is, right? Peter's words are, and that's what we need. That's what you ladies need. And husbands, we'll get to you next time. And uh, the Lord has a lot to say in one verse. I mean, it's a ton, so I might take a couple on that too. It's worth it. It's worth it because with this whole, our culture losing our minds on gender, mind, our losing our, we've lost our minds on roles a long time ago. This is going to become more and more uncommon and more and more uh, unpopular, whatever. More and more an issue of debate, probably even within your own extended families. But just be confident in it and know that the Lord, these things are precious in His sight. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the clarity of it. Lord, I thank You so much for so many of these wives in this room. I know they live this out. I know, I'm in some ways, Lord, preaching to the choir. I'm so thankful we have a choir to preach to that knows these things. They know their roles and they want to be faithful. Lord, give them faith, give them courage, give them trust in your sovereign control over their lives. 
Lord, help us as men to know that we have someone we're responsible for, a precious treasure next to us that we need to watch for and care for and protect and lead well. Lord, we don't, we're, not, we're not in leadership for ourselves. We're in leadership for others. Help us to do it like the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen.